Thank you. And uh, I feel like I should say congratulations uh, to those of you who found parking and survived the adventure here through many dangers, toils, and snares in the parking lot. Um, so it's great to see you all this morning. But I have to admit that as thrilled as I am to be back home, this particular weekend is a bittersweet one for me because on Monday, I'll be flying back to Colorado to begin a new school year. And in my case, this will be the 25th grade, which I don't recommend. <laughs> at some point, you start getting dumber. They don't tell you that at the beginning. Um, but so my summer break will officially be over. And so as I was planning to be here this weekend, um, I started to think what would be a good back-to-school kind of a text for us to look at. And I kept thinking about this one passage in Mark. Um, and you can turn to it if you have a Bible. Uh, it's in Mark uh, chapter 4 starting at verse 18. And so I'll read this passage for us, and then uh, I will explain what this has to do with going back to school. So starting at verse 18. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, and he cured them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage came to mind because it sort of represents a back-to-school moment for the disciples. In the context of this story, Jewish boys, when they were about six years old, would begin an educational boot camp. And I call it a boot camp because they didn't have a school building with desks. And so the students would spend most of their time literally following their teacher or their rabbi like ducklings behind a mama duck. And the teacher would call out a passage of scripture and then the students would repeat it back. Or the teacher would say the first half of the verse and then the students would complete it. Um, and so, of course, occasionally as they were wandering around doing this, there'd be some teachable moment along the way, uh, or they might sit to rest for a while and the teacher would preach a little bit and explain what they were memorizing um, and why it was important, and then they would get up and go again. And it's interesting because if you look at the Gospels, they sort of follow this pattern of teaching that was how they educated their young back then. But at a certain point, when the boys got to be about 13 or 14, things started to get unmanageable for the teacher, which should make perfect sense if you've ever spent time with a pack of middle school boys. And so at this point, the teacher would pick the best and brightest student, or maybe two students, in the bunch, and they would be able to continue their education, but the rest of the students, and this was most of the students, were just done. There was no graduation ceremony, no diploma. Uh, that was just it. 
and shudder to think they didn't even get a summer vacation because they had to start trying to learn their family's business and learn how to manage a household because at that time, parents would arrange a marriage for their sons. And so the sooner they could demonstrate that they were qualified, the better. And based on certain clues in our text this morning, scholars believe that this is the phase or the moment in the lives of these young men. Uh, This is the phase that they're in when Christ invites them to become his disciples. They've been dismissed by their teachers as average and unremarkable. And now they're out on the Sea of Galilee, hustling to catch fish and hoping to reel in a nice wife. And so when Jesus, who is a rabbi, uh, and he would have looked like a rabbi, when he calls out to them and he says, follow me, they would have interpreted that as an invitation that they were going to go back to school and start learning again. Now, we could stop there, and this would be a nice, straightforward story. The disciples are good, faithful, devout Jewish boys. They're eager to learn more about Scripture, to play a more active role in the continuing story of God's relationship with his people. And so, of course, they jump at the chance to follow Jesus rather than sitting around fishing. Who wouldn't? But what makes this story really interesting, I think, are two subtle details. First, there's this strange thing that Jesus says about making the disciples fish for people. And then we read that the disciples immediately drop everything to follow Jesus. There's an urgency in how they react. It's not like they stood around discussing, well, maybe I should pack a sweater. Maybe we should bring some snacks along. How long do you think it's going to take? Are we doing like weeks, months? No, they drop everything in that moment and start to follow Jesus. And so first to understand uh, this line about fishing for people and then why this makes them leave immediately, we have to look beyond just this boat. I think we too often treat passages like this as if it's a scene in a play. There's this little story happening on stage in a spotlight and maybe there's a flat two-dimensional backdrop but that's it. And if we do that with this story, then like I said, it's a very straightforward decision between fishing and following Jesus, which seems like a no-brainer. But the truth is, there's way more going on here than meets the eye. And so we have to ask, what is really at stake for these young men when they choose to abandon their boats and go back to school? And a seemingly unlikely but a good place to start with this is King Herod. And as I was studying some of the history here, I happened upon a note that Herod reportedly died right after an eclipse. So I thought, perfect, Herod it is. Uh, And there are actually two Herods in the Gospels. Um, There's King Herod, and then there's his son, Herod Antipas. And he's the one who comes later and presides over the trial and attempted execution of our Lord, but I'm talking about the older King Herod, uh, who's in the story a few chapters earlier in Matthew 2 about the visit from the wise men or the magi when they come with gifts for the newborn Messiah. Now, the thing you need to know about King Herod is that he was an extraordinarily divisive leader. And I'm sure it's difficult to imagine a political figure that people either really love or really seem to hate, but let's try and use our imaginations. 
In Herod's case, the issue was that he was one of the Jewish people, but he was installed as the king over his own people by the Roman Empire. And so they were really in charge and calling all the shots. And so the people never really knew, and it's hard to tell if Herod actually knew most of the time, whose side was he on, Rome or Israel? And Herod's 33-year reign as king, which translates to eight presidential terms, so you can imagine Reagan, Bush, Clinton, W. Bush, Obama, Trump, that's how long he's in charge, Uh, But his 33-year reign was at a time when the influence of this Roman culture, its religion, its philosophy, politics, art, language, and so on, all of these influences are seeping into every aspect of people's lives. Change was constant, and the people of Israel saw Herod as being somehow at the center of it all. And so there ends up being what we might call a Herod effect among the people of Israel during this time. And the people split into two main groups. And there's a few fringe groups too, but there's two main groups. And on the one side, you have those who say, look, we need to get along with the Romans. They've been very accommodating. They let us continue to worship our God. They even let us rebuild our temple in Jerusalem. And so if they ask us to pay taxes to Caesar or to say that Caesar is the son of God as he likes to be called, we should just do it. We need to be tolerant of their views and beliefs and and their opinions, even if it's different from our own. And in the Gospels, this view is often represented by the Sadducees. And so when we read about them trying to trick Jesus or trap him with a particular question, they're trying to get him to demonstrate whether he's on their side or the other side. But on the other side, there's a view that's often represented in the Gospels by the Pharisees. And they ask Jesus gotcha questions for the same reason. Their side of the aisle says, no, we shouldn't accommodate this outside influence. How dare they impose their beliefs and their worldview on us? In our land, the promised land given to our ancestors by God, If anything, we need to double down on our religious traditions and practices and orthodoxy to send a message to these foreigners that we're not going to let them transform our culture or undermine the values and beliefs that make our nation unique. At this point, I imagine a few of you might be squirming a little bit because this sounds awfully familiar, sounds terribly political, but My point is simply that this is the world that the disciples are living in. These are young people who would go to worship and hear their religious leaders arguing about the relationship between church and state. They would hear older members of their community lamenting how young people were leaving the faith and abandoning their tradition, led astray by new ideologies and ways of living. They also saw many of their peers becoming what scripture calls zealots, or what today we might call radicalized militant extremists. And these zealots would assassinate Roman soldiers in public, in broad daylight. But then again, these were the Roman soldiers who had carried out King Herod's order to kill any child under the age of two near Bethlehem. So whose side are we on? These were believers who would attend weddings and festivals and would get drawn into heated arguments 
with friends and family about whether or not certain statues ought to be displayed in public places. And this is true. I was amazed to find this. This was an actual controversy around this time period. The Roman Empire was putting statues of their leaders and their gods in, in uh, synagogues, and particularly in the temple in Jerusalem. And so half the people said, how dare you? That's not who we are. That's not what we believe. And the other half said, well, that's not who we used to be, but it's who we are now, so get used to it. My point here is that these are not a couple of guys sitting on a boat. They're not just choosing between fishing and following Jesus. They're living at a time and a moment which is overflowing with political turmoil, economic uncertainty, ethnic conflict, racial tensions, and perhaps most of all, a time of spiritual crisis. In the midst of all of this madness, where is our God? When will he intervene? And, and when he does, or even if he does, whose side is he really on? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Gentiles? And how do we know? These fishermen are called to follow Jesus in an age of uncertainty. At a time when this pervasive and almost palpable anxiousness seemed to just hover and hang in the air like humidity on a hot summer night in Chicago. So thick that you could feel it. So let's ask ourselves and be honest. Do we want to follow Jesus or stay in the boat? It is precisely this cultural craziness I've been describing that Jesus addresses when he says, I will make you fish for people. We tend to assume that this is foreshadowing, right? We know that much later these disciples are going to become great teachers, preachers, and leaders of the early Christian movement. And so this statement seems like a, a teaser trailer for the book of Acts uh, that's kind of buried back here in Matthew's gospel. But for the disciples, this would have reminded them of the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament, several of whom play around with this idea that people have become like fish and the Messiah will be like a fisherman. The people are like fish, according to the prophets, in that there is no unity among them. They seem to have no direction. And they might seem to come together as a community and swim as a school, but if you drop a pebble into the water, they scatter and disperse, every fish for his or herself. Or if you drop a kernel of food in the water, they turn in against one another, a kind of feeding frenzy of every fish for his or herself. And accordingly, the people become aimless. They drift around, pushed and pulled by turbulent currents in a dark and seemingly lifeless place. And so the Messiah will come to reunite God's people together into one body, like fish drawn together in one big net. Then, and only after unity has been restored among God's people, our Messiah will lift us up together as one, out of this present darkness and into the light, into a transformed reality. And then finally, our Redeemer and King shall, as we often confess, come to judge the living and the dead, like a fisherman who's, who decides which fish to keep and which ones 
to throw back. And so Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And this is his brilliant way of saying in a mere 10 words, which as someone who studies communication, I so appreciate the brevity. But in 10 words, he's basically conveying to the disciples, I know the world is crazy. It's messed up right now and it seems really overwhelming. And you probably would like to do something about it, even just a little thing, to help change it and start to turn it around somehow. And I get that, and I know how to do it. I know what you need to do. I know what needs to be done. And I've got some amazing insights into what God is doing in the midst of all of this. So follow me, and I will teach you. I'll show you, and I will prepare you to go and change the world for the better. As teachers, as pastors, as parents and friends and siblings, you can do this. We can do this together. So let's do it. Come on, let's go. All of that, but in 10 very well-chosen words. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately, the disciples, who felt more than they possibly could have known in that moment, follow him. They let go of the one thing they have control of, the one area in their lives where they feel most in control. They drop it so that Jesus can lead them towards something much better. And so what is the net that we need to drop today? What's one thing that keeps us so tangled up in our own stuff that we can't seem to follow him? Immediately, the disciples are drawn into this illuminating light and love of our Lord. And they take a bold, decisive step away from this place where they feel safe, secure, and certain about what tomorrow will be like. Rather than continuing to sit and watch the world fall apart or waiting for it to change, they dive headfirst into a terrifyingly dark, chaotic world, armed only with weapons-grade hope. Our Lord says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And so what is the boat that we need to step out of today? What perhaps scary place or thing are we being called to go and do in order that we might be and that the world might be transformed? Immediately, the disciples go, not one by one, but two by two. And two becomes four, becomes 12. 12 turns into a crowd of dozens, hundreds, thousands. They are not called alone, but rather as a squad. <laughs> Christ invites them to join a community of mutual support and care, both for and from one another. And that is what we are called to be as his church. And this is what's so beautiful about the model of discipleship that we find here. The single most difficult thing about change in our own lives or, or in our society the hardest part of any significant change is that it disrupts our relationships. It disorders our communities and it unsettles our sense that we are known and that we know the people around us. Yet without change, we can't grow. And so we have this beautiful vision of the church as a place where we can grow without losing that sense of who we are and being detached from our community. But this leads to where I'd like to conclude this morning. As I was reflecting on this story, I kept coming back to how Jesus 
quickly assembles a group and how they immediately go to share good news and heal those who are sick and hurting. In a lot of my research on media and culture, I have increasingly been encountering statistics on loneliness. Just a few weeks ago, a, a very prominent medical association declared loneliness as the biggest public health threat in our culture today because it is linked to anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, obesity, substance abuse, heart disease, and the list goes on and on and on. And while a lot of this research has looked at middle-aged and older adults, particularly those who live alone, we've also seen a huge increase in this among young people as well. And it breaks my heart to share this morning that currently the second leading cause of death in the U.S. among adolescents and young adults is suicide. One of the wealthiest, most technologically and scientifically advanced societies in the history of the world. And increasingly, this is a society and a life that's not worth living for many young people. This is a spiritual crisis, my friends. Not political, not economic, not something we need to throw more money or research at. We can blame technology to the extent that it enables us. It allows us to settle for connection without communion. But at some point, we have to ask, who's in control? This is a spiritual crisis, but it's an epidemic that ought to be embarrassingly easy for the church, and even for this church, to begin to conquer and to cure. But it takes risk. We have to be willing to forfeit control and to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to get rejected or to feel like we just wasted an hour or two having a painfully awkward lunch or coffee with someone. Even if we ourselves might be some of those who feel isolated, alienated, or completely on our own, somebody has to take the first step. Somebody has to make the first move. And so why not you? Why not me? Why not us? Our Lord says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Whether or not you're a student, I wanted, wanted to invite us all to take this back to school season as an opportunity to prayerfully consider what needs to change for you as well as what you need to change. This year can be so much better than last year. And all it takes is doing one thing a little bit differently. As crazy and contentious and chaotic as our world may seem these days, it can all change if we will. Follow him and he will make you fish for people. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the faith that leads us to persevere, for the hope that emboldens us to be courageous in the face of what may feel like insurmountable struggles and adversity, and for your great and infinite love for us poured out to us. 
Bind us together, Lord, as your church, as one body of those who have been called by Christ to follow him and to be transformed together into agents of renewal and instruments of peace in your world. May we as your church be brought into complete unity, just as you are one in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that the world will know you and come to believe in you through us. Finally, we pray for our leaders, Lord. Particularly, we ask that you would give them wisdom as they deal with the hurricane in Texas. Give them clarity and help them to come to the aid of all those who need it. And all God's people said, amen.